Hey guys. Hey everybody. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Chase. And this is Crime with a K. And if you're listening to this, it means that we're in Europe. Yes, we are in Europe. We're in Switz. Chilling, vibing, <laughs> enjoying the scenes and the sights. I guess we'll tell you why we picked Switzerland. I don't, I mean, I think we just picked it, right? You picked it. I picked this it. This is Chase's first time ever out of the country, so we let him pick where he really wanted to go. Yep, and I chose um, Australia and Kelsey said no, That's so I were going to Switzerland. That's not true. That's not true. It's not true. He chose Japan, and I said, that might be a little overwhelming for your first time ever out of the country. And then he said, okay, Switzerland. And then in my head, I was like, oh my God, he picked the most expensive place to go. <laughs> it ain't that bad, though. We're, we're making it work. Yeah. No, it hasn't. It actually hasn't been too bad. If you do it right, you can do it pretty affordably. We were about to expend a lot of money. Yeah. And then we figured it out. Yeah. Swiss travel pass, people. The Swiss travel pass. That's what we're going to bank on. Let's hope it's right. Yes. And we'll tell you all about it when we come home. But right now we're pre-recording this before we go over. So that way you guys can have episodes while we're gone. Yeah. Yeah. So um, coffee <clears throat> of the day. I actually went to hot yoga this morning with my friend Dom. Dom, if you're listening, hi. And we went to Caribou Coffee. Um, I got a cold-pressed coffee with almond milk. And it was good. Nice. Um, it was a half day for me at work, so no coffee. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in and out, easy day. Easy day. Well, unless my boss calls me. While we're recording While this. we're recording now, which might actually happen. <laughs> I will say, too, Chase has been pounding apple juice. <laughs> I love apple juice. What does that have to do with anything? Why are you coming up? What the fuck? Well, I will tell everybody Kelsey's devouring chocolates. <laughs> she just murdered a chocolate rabbit. Ate a whole. Literally didn't even breathe. <laughs> I was saying it because, like, that's kind of been your coffee of the day is apple juice. Oh, I thought you were coming after me. No. <laughs> no. But I just got insulted. Yeah, you, you don't come after me in a man's apple juice. Yeah. It's a tight bond we have. I, I love have. my apple juice. Yeah, he does. He drinks it right out of the bottle. Damn right, because it's not yours. And then every time I go to have some, he literally shuts me down. I don't drink your coffee. Don't touch my juice. Mm. Mm. He ate my Dove chocolates, though. Yeah, I was hungry. <laughs> so before we jump into today's episode, well, two things. First of all, today's episode is, it's a mass shooting. Um, I know that there's, I don't want to say that this is like a bad time to do it because I don't think there's ever a good time to do it. But I also think that the country we live in, like they just keep happening. So it's like putting us in a weird spot of whether or not to cover it. 
So I just want to make you aware that that's today's episode. If you don't feel like listening to that or it's not up your alley, totally understand. Um, And then next week we will have a murder case. All right. Well, I have to be here regardless. So (laughs) Sorry, Chase. And then before we jump into the actual case, so I wanted to talk about a case that's currently unfolding, another husband who's suspected of murdering his wife. So as if we already don't all hate the dentist enough, we now have a killer dentist who's making headlines in Aurora, Colorado. See, that's why I don't go. (laughs) So James Craig, who's 45 years old, was arrested on suspicion of first degree murder after his wife was taken off a life support. James Craig's wife, Angela, she had visited the hospital three times over the course of the month of March, and doctors were completely unable to find what was wrong with her, what was happening. But police in Aurora, Colorado, began investigating uh, James after his dental practice partner and friend told a nurse that James had ordered potassium cyanide, even though it was not needed for their work. Ooh. Yeah. Be your own friend. He also told everybody at his work not to open the packages, which kind of made them then open the packages, and then they saw the cyanide. Then James also researched questions on Google, such as, is arsenic detectable in an autopsy? Hmm. Yep. Seems good. Why are these all these husbands still just going on the internet and typing? Yeah. I know. Like, you think they learn. Or you guys, like, at least, like, you guys have... Very high degrees. <laughs> right? You'd understand a little bit of technology. You would think. Especially, too, like your internet footprint, or what is it? Your digital footprint yeah, is or... so strong. It can't be erased. Especially if you're just going on Google. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, you're, <laughs> yeah, not, like... you're not even trying. Also, too, your digital footprint is tracked to put in an algorithm of, like, ads to give you. So if you're Googling, like, how to kill my wife, you're going to get ads about, like, arsenic knives yeah like it's gonna start to show up and like track that they just don't pay attention no so police believe that james craig was putting arsenic in one of his wife's protein shakes that he would routinely make for her every single day he had done this before this wasn't the first time that he tried to poison her um several years earlier he tried to poison his wife and then wrote it off as having a hard time not being all there and the couple worked through it wait 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 so she found out yeah, she got sick and then found so out he's like, he was um, her. I'm sorry I poisoned you. I love you. Yep. I was in a dark place. Yep. Wanted, and he did it again. And he did it again because he was having an affair, which oh, it's always an affair. Makes sense. So James Craig's friend discovered the potassium cyanide at the dental office and told investigators that James Craig was on the verge of bankruptcy and had been having problems in his marriage. Angela Craig's sister, Tony, told police that James Craig had drugged his wife about five years prior with an unknown substance because he had planned to kill himself as he didn't want her to be able to survive uh, without him. Hmm, okay. In one of the texts that he had sent his wife, so she was texting him. He was away with his mistress on vacation, but said he was away at a conference. He texted his wife because they were going back and forth because she was like, I don't feel good. I still feel sick. I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't get better. He was just basically like, aw, aw, do you feel really ill? How ill do you feel? Then he wrote, quote, given our history, I know that must have been triggering. Just for the record, I didn't drug you. I am super worried, though. If anyone ever said that they didn't drug me, I would immediately be like, I've been drugged by you. You drugged me. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he's not here and he's on a drill. Mm-hmm. And she probably did think that. She's probably like, mm, red flag. 
So two days before Angela was declared brain dead, the woman police say that James was having an affair with wrote Craig in an email expressing sympathy about what he was going through. However, she said that she did not think it was right for her to mix with those who were mourning Angela because she did not want to, quote, conceal what I feel for you. So he's scheduled to appear in court, but other than that, there's not really anything. It's just basically like she passed away and he was poisoning her protein shakes with arsenic and cyanide. And you didn't even get the girl. No. Sounds fun, huh? Hope it's worth it. Douchehead. (laughs) Douchehead. So now jumping into today's case. So today's case is about the Wakefield Massacre. So this took place in Wakefield, Massachusetts. So of course. up north of Boston. Michael Morgan McDermott was born on September 4th, 1958 in Marshfield, Massachusetts. But his name given at birth was Michael McDermott Martinez. He was the second of four children born to Richard and Rosemary Martinez, and his parents were both teachers and members of the Marshfield Historical Society. And while Michael was a teenager, he was a member of the Marshfield High School Audiovisual Club and helped his parents in their community work. He graduated from Marshfield High School in 1976, where his classmates said he was pretty popular among his peers. And when you got two parents in the school system, yeah, everyone kind of knows you. A hundred percent. After high school, Michael enlisted in the U.S. Navy on June 28th, and he went on to serve in several submarine training schools until September 1st, 1977, where he was assigned to the Nuclear Power Training Unit in Idaho Falls. That's pretty cool. Right? He served as an electrician on the USS Narwhal from 1978 to 1982, and then was sent to the Personal Support Detachment at the Naval Station in Charleston, South Carolina. Ooh, whoop, whoop. Charleston. Yeah, that's where Chase and I wish we could move (laughs) if we had money. Yeah. Michael ended up changing his name to Michael Morgan McDermott in 1980, but I couldn't find exactly why he decided to change his name, but that's how he got that new name. Hmm. I wonder why. I know. On June 27th, 1982, Michael was honorably discharged with the rank of electrician's mate petty officer, second class. So Michael really had a bright future with a lot going on for him. And from 1982 to 1988, Michael worked for the Maine Yankee Nuclear Power Plant, which was a power plant in Wiscasset, Maine. And there he trained to become a reactor operator, but he was never able to attain the position. So a little while later, in 1990, Michael completely quit the job at the power plant and moved down to Weymouth, Massachusetts. That kind of sucks. I know. Because you can make a lot of money. I know. No, I know. And I I don't really know why he gave up, because he could have just kept working towards the position. But given the behavior, he kind of seems like one of those people that looked at things as hopeless. Yeah, or maybe it was just like, I'm going to go do it at another job, maybe. Yeah. And back to where he moved or grew up because Weymouth's only like 20 minutes north of Marshfield. Mm. So in Weymouth, Michael began working as a technologist in the battery products group of Duracell, which was located in Needham, Massachusetts. Then on September 26, 1992, he ended up marrying his high school acquaintance, Monica Sheehan. But they ended up separating in 1996 and they got divorced in 1997. Mm. After the divorce, it's reported that Michael gained a lot of weight and adopted an almost shaggy-like look. <laughs> I thought you said about to adopt a child. I was like, oh my god, that's dramatic. <laughs> like, he decided to become a father. He gets fat and becomes a father. 
If you see photos of him, it almost looks like he looks like a mad scientist. So I don't know if shaggy is really the right word to describe him. I'd go more with like unkept and ungroomed. Yeah, mad scientist. Yeah, which is sad because any any marriage falling apart is sad. Also, I haven't mentioned this, but his nickname that he went by was Mucko. And it was given to him by a nephew of his who couldn't pronounce his first name. Mucko. Mucko. Okay. In February of 2000, he resigned from his job at Duracell and accepted a job at Edgewater Technology in Wakefield, Massachusetts in March. On October 31st, 2000, Michael failed to pay his rent in his apartment in South Weymouth. So he moved out of that apartment and landlord said that he left it in a shabby state and owed the owner $1,720 of work. Yikes. Yeah. He ended up moving into an apartment in Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is about 30 miles north of Wakefield, where his job was. And sorry, I'm giving you guys a lot of different towns and like jobs, but this is where it all starts to He just to traveled. Slow down. Yeah, he's yeah. all over the place. He was hopping. The landlord of this apartment actually said that he had to completely renovate the apartment after Michael vacated it due to a broken dishwasher, uh, holes in the walls, a torn carpet, and the remnants of a flood everywhere, which I can imagine just caused stains, odor, pests. Gross. Gross. His upstairs neighbor said that Michael mentioned that he'd collected antique guns, but kept quiet and never talked about the company that he worked at. Okay, so it's like he's going downhill. Yeah. So a little bit about Wakefield, and which is the town where this company that Michael worked at was located. Wakefield is definitely a small little town. It's about 20 minutes north of Boston, and it's a very homey town. There's a really big lake that people walk. There's lots of family-owned businesses, and then some office-like businesses that are kind of in the mix. But all in all, it's definitely a family town that people move to if they work in Boston or any of the surrounding greater Boston towns. Mm-hmm. On December 26, 2000, Michael McDermott walked in around 8 a.m., proceeded towards his desk as usual. At 11.07 a.m., a representative from Chrysler, the car company, called Michael and informed him that his 1994 Plymouth was going to be repossessed for failed payments. His only response was, quote, I won't be needing it. Come pick it up. And he hung up the phone. Three minutes later, at 11.10 a.m. on the morning of December 26, 2000, amid Christmas wreaths, warm post-Christmas smiles, and lingering holiday cheer, Michael Morgan McDermott calmly walked into the reception area carrying an AK-47, a 12-gauge shotgun, and a 32 caliber pistol, and shot two people in the reception area. He then went on to gun down three others in the hallway and the last two in the accounting office. In order to get into the accounting office, he blew off the lock on the door by shooting it out with the guns. When police arrived, they found Michael sitting silently and calmly in the reception area with his weapons in arm's reach, but the police did tackle him to the ground and seized all of his weapons. They said that he was sitting with his AK-47 pointed up at the ceiling in between his legs, and the police who rushed to the scene stated that the only thing he said at the time was, quote, I don't speak German, which we'll get into that later on. Okay. He also had a duffel bag full of ammo next to him, and it only took him just under 10 minutes to commit the murders of his co-workers, so I can only imagine how chaotic and how terrifying this entire thing must have been. 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Hmm. Which really puts into perspective how fast... Oh, he definitely came with a lot of ammo. Yeah. So when his trial began, Michael's attorney tried to play the insanity card. Keyword, tried. They found psychiatrists who diagnosed him with schizophrenia and said that this was brought on by mental illness. 
They shared that Michael stated that when he went into work that day, he truly, in his mind, believed that his co-workers were Adolf Hitler and his Nazi soldiers, and by killing him, he'd be preventing the Holocaust. Yeah, but someone who goes insane wouldn't have a premeditation to call the right car company and be like, I won't need this. Right. That's pre like you're planning on not coming back. Yep. You know what you're doing. Yep. However, prosecutors were able to combat this, which, thank God, because they had enough evidence that Michael had planned this entire event. When police searched Michael's computer, they'd found that for years prior to the murder, he'd been researching how to fake insanity. Whoa. Yeah. So for several years, Michael was researching how to act insane and essentially commit a crime and get away with it by pleading insanity. They also found that he purchased a copy of, quote, Clinical Assessment of Malingering and Deception, which is a reference book used by psychiatrists for diagnosis of schizophrenia. I mean, it didn't seem like he was insane. It just seemed like he was quiet. No, And yeah. dirty. <laughs> and dirty. Just a quiet, dirty man. <laughs> he was, actually. He was. On top of that, witnesses stated that he was only targeting specific people. He'd basically walk through the office passing people while gunning down others. So obviously, if it were truly a schizophrenic episode, he wouldn't be hunting specific people down. It was also learned that the payroll department was withholding money from his paycheck per the IRS for a tax debt that he owed, and the HR and payroll employees were two of those that he'd murdered. Hmm. Co-workers... That's planned. Oh, very planned. And like targeted, Mm -hmm. specific... Co-workers also testified that the week prior, when Michael was notified of the withholding, or it's actually called a garnishment, he could be heard screaming and yelling from the HR office. It's like, it's not their fault. No. Why are you yelling at them? Just pay your bills. <laughs> pay your bills. Damn. The next part is just completely heartbreaking, but co-workers said that some of his victims only had time to say a couple of words such as, quote, Mike, no, and Mike, why? On Christmas Eve, Haverhill police received a call at 11.40 p.m. of gunshots. So this is two days before the actual murder. Oh, jeez. Because the murder took place on the day after Christmas. Mm-hmm. Investigators discovered that a man driving a sedan with the license plate Mucko had been spotted in a wooded area, where they later found a handful of shotgun shells. So these police officers feel as though it was their chance to stop him before this absolute nightmare happened, and they feel that they completely failed these people. Mm. But I mean, how I mean, how would you know? Yeah, like first of all, they shouldn't. Yeah, because like what I mean, it could just be an idiot trying to hunt or sh- right. shoot, just shoot a gun. Right. And like Haverhill is more north near the border in New Hampshire, so I feel like it's more woodsy up there. And you wouldn't like if some guy's just out shooting in the woods. One, you shouldn't be doing that. But like, no. if you just found shells, you don't know that he's gonna go commit a mass murder. No, not in a at day. all. No. The shooting took place less than two days later, and he'd moved on from that area because that night, after test-firing his weapons, he drove home. And then the next day, after or on Christmas, he brought all of his weapons into the office to leave them there for the following day. No way. Yeah. So when this every... was very premeditated. Oh, very. So while everybody was celebrating Christmas, he's in the office putting his guns there to kill them all the next day. That's so crazy. Yep. So thankfully... <laughs> The jury did not buy the insanity defense, and it took them 16 hours over the course of three days to reach a verdict. On April 23, 2002, the jury unanimously pronounced Michael McDermott guilty on all seven counts of first-degree murder. Since Massachusetts doesn't have the death penalty, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. To date, 
This is the most deadly murder and shooting in Massachusetts history, and it's actually one of the very first cases in Massachusetts where the police had to persuade judges to allow them to search the suspect's computer, which I thought was really interesting because that's now just standard. But back then, with computers being so new, you wouldn't necessarily have that right or even thought to search someone's computer. That's crazy. That is kind of crazy. Thank God they did, though. I know. Because that's literally exactly what gave them that guilty verdict and the charges of you're not insane. No, you're a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. The police chief at the time, Stephen Darty, is now retired, but he works as a consultant to companies across the country trying to diminish workplace violence, which honestly tells you how bad this scene was if the police chief on the scene retired and then went on to teach others about diminishing workplace violence. About that one case, yeah. yeah. He was actually one of the first ones on the scene and said that something every day reminds him of that moment, which is so sad. And I think oftentimes we forget that it's not just those who are in the scene of the crime that are affected forever, but those who have to show up to that crime and see it and have to hold it together enough to handle. And then go do it again. Yeah. Like my heart not only breaks for everybody involved in that situation, but everybody who has to come upon that scene. And the victims, just to name them, were Craig Wood who was 29 years old in human resources, Janice Haggerty, who was 46 years old. She was an office manager. Jennifer Bragg Capobianco. She was 29 years old in marketing. Cheryl Troy. She was 50 years old and vice president of human resources. Rose Manfredi, 48 years old, accountant in the payroll department. Louis Chevelle, 58 years old, director of consulting. And Paul Merceau, 36 years old and development technician. Hmm. Sad. Very sad. Bruce Joy, who served with Michael McDermott on the Narwhal, which is the ship, said that McDermott was a decent enough guy, but, quote, he could lash out. Sometimes if he felt insulted or slighted, quote, in ways that might really shock you. Quote, he once cut my leg with a knife. I don't think he meant to get so close, and he was very apologetic. It wasn't intentional, but it's the kind of thing a person does without thinking. Just one of those screwy things that said something about his character. He also said, quote, when somebody violated his personal space and got too close to him, he responded by sneezing directly in their face. In the bizarre world of the submarine community, there was nothing that would suggest that he would do what he did later in life. Yeah, nothing really. Nothing. He just seemed like a grumpy, dirty man. He didn't seem like a killer. And then he just was like, I just want to kill these random people. Yeah. And then go to jail. Maybe it was like his way of going to jail. Mm Mm-hmm. So he didn't have to worry about the car or the rent or anything anymore. He could just go. Yeah. The state pays for, make like, I don't know. I think he just looked at life as useless. Like, he I just guess. didn't care. When police searched his one-bedroom apartment the day after the shooting, they played the answering machine and the voicemail message where it says, like, hi, you've reached Kelsey. I can't come to the phone right now. Instead of that, it said, quote, hello, this is Michael's computer. Here I am, a brain the size of a planet. And what does he have me doing? Answering the phone. So, was he really smart? I mean, he has to be pretty smart. You see, yeah. I mean, he, he had a pretty decent job. Well, yeah, it seems like even all the jobs he worked weren't bad jobs. No. He was, it is very weird. Mm-hmm. Investigators said it was a playful reference to the sci-fi classic, quote, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I haven't really seen that movie in a very long time. Um, So some of you may understand that reference because I do not. No idea. Never heard of it. No. But also in his home, they found fuses, blasting caps, three gallons of nitric acid in a cardboard box labeled in all caps, quote, dangerous, do not move. 
After speaking with his neighbors, police learned that he wasn't known as a happy, smiley guy, but on Christmas, he was beyond cheery, saying hello to everyone, and they said that he was never cheery. That's even weirder. Like, what? Like, he was waiting his whole life for this? For this moment. Then, to end on a couple of eerie and pretty creepy and honestly sinister facts about Michael McDermott... So Michael McDermott would donate blood every couple of weeks, like religiously. He would drive an hour, take two hours to donate blood, then drive back the hour home. He did this every two to three weeks for six years. He also had a bumper sticker on the back of his car that said, quote, give blood. He's so weird. Like, he just seems like a very weird dude. And it's like, yeah, he planned all this stuff for years. And it was like, it wasn't even that well planned. And it was like, after you were done with it, you just sat there and yeah. you were like, done. And like I, that's what that, that took you like years and years to plan out. And I don't think, I don't think the giving blood is the weird thing because if you can give blood, you should give blood. And I'm, I'm. No, it's just weird that he did it for six straight years. And then but yes. like for what? But for like, why? Because you, you aren't a giving person. No. And you, typically like donating blood is to help people. But in the same token, you just took lives away. And he was so religious in the giving blood where he would not miss an appointment to go give blood. Yeah, that's that's why it's weird. Yeah. Super weird. So weird. Also, the August before this all happened, Michael McDermott was in an online chat room that discussed violence. And he was preaching peace to all of these people. His username was Mucko. And the chat was focused around explosives. And he was preaching to be peaceful and nonviolent. Someone was looking to purchase landmines, which one, we need to find out who that is and why they need those. And where. And two, what are they doing with those? And what are they planning on doing those? And Michael said to this guy looking to buy these explosives, quote, it would seem that some Christians have forgotten the sixth commandment. It's hard to imagine Jesus resorting to landmines. And for those of you that might not know that sixth commandment, it's quote, thou shall not kill. Makes sense, which he decided to do. He decided to also forget the Sixth Commandment. Forgot your own self, buddy. But that is the sad and tragic story of the Wakefield Massacre. They didn't really give you any answers. No. Like, why? No. What was the purpose? And why those people? Like, like, why was life so down bad for you that you killed everyone else? You didn't just kill yourself. I know. Like, you had to take a bunch of those people. For no, like, just no rhyme or reason. Like, you were mad at the state, bro. You didn't pay your bills. It's your fault. Yeah, you don't mean to you just get killed, like, six, seven people for the fun of it. No. Don't be mad at HR. Yeah, for your downfall. This is what he looked like. Oh, gosh. Actually, he looks like the guy from Harry Potter. Hagrid? Yeah. He looks like Hagrid. Like, to a T, he looks like Hagrid. Very weird how he just snapped. Yeah. Very weird. Hmm. Um, and they converted that office building into apartments. Which oh, ag- I would not want to live there. Again, with the whole, like, I think it should be made into some sort of memorial. Absolutely. I am not living there. No. But, like, like, it's not even about, like, living there. It's just about, like, people died there. And they're like, that's okay. Tear them down and tear them down and people else. can just, yeah, live on top of yeah. their gravesides. I just wouldn't feel comfortable living there. Not because, well, one, I, I am scared of, like, ghosts. But two people died like i don't want to live somewhere that they were just like ah, bulldoze it over build something else move on like i don't like that you don't like it at all yeah well the industry industry does not care about our feelings no they care about dollars 
Money talks. Money. Well, yeah, they do everything. Money talks. But yeah, so sorry, but we're 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 hanging out in Switz right now. T T Y L. Okay. Oh, Chase is gone. He's left. Left for Switz. Um, but I'm not gonna do any more mass shootings. I don't know. I'll be actually. I'm gonna be honest with you guys. Okay, coming from a true crime podcaster. <laughs> sometimes I get really nervous because I don't know what's crossing the line and what's not. And I never want to make anybody feel that we don't have any empathy. And there's just so many mass shootings in this country that I already had this one written and it would put me into this, like, I don't really know what to do. So just know that that's where I'm coming from. We're just always trying our best over here. Yep. We are. I never want to offend anyone. I never want to make anyone sad. I'm just trying to be a true crime podcaster and, and be a good person. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> but, okay. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Instagram at... Crime with a K. If you want to send us in a case suggestion, you can send it in to... Crime with a K. And if you want to follow us on TikTok, you can follow us there. Crime with a K. Other than that, bye. We'll see you next week with a nice long episode. Chase, why are you shouldering? I thought you were dancing with No. Oh. <laughs> I'm trying to say goodbye to our okay, friends. Okay, okay. All right, au revoir. Bye. Au revoir.